0: Great to see you this morning. Uh, As you can see, no big drum roll or anything, we're just right into it. Here it is, our new series, Book of Judges. Uh, Thanks to Paul for his, as usual, his creativity and all of that. Um, Yes, so uh, Judges, uh, we're going to spend from now till... At least the end of November, uh, going through this, going through this book. It's uh, fascinating and disturbing and challenging and wonderful in in equal measure. And um, I've just I've just found myself in this in this book over the last number of months, and and uh, I just thought it'd be good. Uh, to share some thoughts, to share some things. I think it's really important actually just to actually go through a book of the Bible together. I think there's something uh, really special about that. Because um, I know for a lot of you in the room, if you were really honest, uh, reading the Bible is is a challenge. Studying the Bible is is quite difficult. And so this, over the next number of weeks, we're going to read a whole book together. We're going to study a whole book together. And we're going to wrestle through uh, implications and uh, challenges application uh, during our midweeks, and I'm uh, sure so really looking forward to seeing what God wants to to say to us, how He wants his, wants to challenge us and, and motivate us and do something in our hearts and our minds as we as we uh, as we take this on together. So um, I just thought right at the beginning, right as a as an introduction this morning, the. To remind you, where Judges is, Judges is—it's—it's uh, it's really good because, as you get past, as you get to the first five books of the Bible—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy—and then you come to, um, you come to Joshua and Judges, and you come to first, uh, uh, first and second Samuel—and it's just this, this—it's wonderful because it's all in order; it's all in chronological order, it's historical, chronological order, and uh, and it's just that's really important for me because then it gets to the other books of the Bible and chronologically they're all over the place. So just before the book of Judges is, is Joshua and just after the book of Judges is 1 Samuel. And uh, and so here we have this story, the book that we're studying finds itself right in the middle of Joshua and Samuel. It finds itself right in uh, at the end of the Exodus story and the end of Judges finds itself at the beginning of the monarchy. Judges finds itself at the start, at the end of the life of Moses and of Joshua. And then, at the end of Judges, we are we are then invited into the life of Samuel and Saul and King David. And uh, so, initially, as we as we approach this book one of those questions that that I find myself asking, how is how is the message being communicated? Who is this message being communicated to? Because right up right up the Exodus story we have Moses is the representative of God's people. He's the one that hears and, and brings down to the people what God has has to say and then Joshua is as his successor follows follows suit. We get the judges. Joshua has has died, and uh, and let me just read where, let me just read the last few verses of Joshua chapter twenty four. In verse twenty eight, we're told of uh, the death of Joshua. Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath-Sirah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. So that's, a, that's at one end of the book of Judges. On the other end of the book of Judges, we have the story of, of Samuel. We are introduced to the life of Samuel. And throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we are, I think we are given three options. And I think those three options still remain remain for us today. The three options are will you will you follow God's rule through God's king? Will you allow King Jesus to rule and to reign? Or will you be like everyone else and and be ruled by a human king? And I'm not to, want to this is not to dismiss authority that is in place over Over governments, but what I'm what I'm saying is, through the book of Samuel, we're asked, "Do you want to be just like everybody else? Are you going to be just like everybody else? Or the third option is that there is no rule, or there is self-rule, and this self-rule is summed up in the book of Judges, especially towards the end. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes." And that's the theme that is one of the themes throughout this book. That they've, they've, they've rejected the, the kingship of God. They, they still don't have a, a human king. They're not yet like everyone else, but we're heading that direction. They've, they've chosen and it becomes the established pattern that we see repeated throughout the book of Judges. That is summed up, as I've said, in its conclusion that everyone did. What was right in their own eyes? Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did whatever they wanted to do. And I know that 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 even me saying those words, that for many of us we we can say and we will agree with the statement that that seems to fit our culture today. The very the thought of no rule, the thought of self rule, fits our culture today, and and. And as much as that is true, and I'm aware that that is true for the world, but what I'd love to say almost provocatively is don't think that the same accusation cannot be made of the church. Don't think that the same accusation cannot be made of the people of God. That everyone does whatever they want. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's some of the That's some of the things that we want to challenge as we go through this this book, this incredible book Angus Buchan, uh was speaking at the event that we quite a few of us were at yesterday. Incredible to be there wonderful, felt really significant, just gathering with thousands to worship Jesus and to call out for our land and it was actually wonderful it was really jessica and cesar came and, uh, and told me the story of this this uh, of this lady which they've told us about this morning but as we were as we were leaving the husband that came and just was still like his eyes were like saucers he was still like so enthused and he and he and jessica and cesar introduced and he almost grabbed grabbed and just says you've no idea what it's been like for my wife you have no idea the pain that she is, has just endured relentlessly constantly and for, for them to be encountered by Jesus was just so beautiful. And I say this really as respectfully as possible. As I began to engage with this man, he, he is someone that most, even within the church, would walk past. We would have probably ignored him. We might not have given him a second chance. And, and here, Caesar and Jessica, move with compassion. Go and, and take hold by faith, the prayer of faith, which Angus Bucken encouraged us with yesterday. And what I'd love to suggest, actually, is whenever Paul comes to, to finish uh, our time off in worship, that if you're sick, that if there's there some sickness or disease or whatever that you've carried in here this morning, that you would allow Cesar and Jessica to pray for you. I think there's something that the Lord is so attracted to, to hunger. He is so attracted to boldness. And, and any one of us, anybody can pray. And Don't hear me saying that any one of us can't pray for the sick this morning. But I just, before they go home, I just love that they would be able to pray if you've come sick. That you'd be stirred by their faith. You'd be stirred by their expression of faith. But Angus Buckingham said yesterday, he said, he said something along these lines. That, that, that God is the biggest thing or the, the main thing that has God's hands almost tied is pride. Angus Buchan said, "Dirty, stinking pride." Amen. Dirty, stinking pride. And uh, he said, "Arrogance. Arrogance is causes us to miss what God wants to do." And and so I, I, that's some of the stuff that we want to challenge throughout this throughout this series. We want to challenge pride we want to challenge we want to expose dirty stinking pride and i am aware that it's in the world but it's there's pride and there's arrogance within the church within the people of god and and some of these messages might be really difficult because we're so accustomed we want we want the messages of love and grace and patience and th- and th- this is hear me this is a message of love and grace and patience and you'll see that it's relentless his grace throughout it all, even though we sometimes mightn't see it, even though it might come differently than what we're used to seeing, love and grace and patience. Trust me, this book is threaded right throughout from start to finish, how relentlessly gracious and patient and loving God is. But there's some stuff that we, we, we want to expose. We no longer want pride and arrogance to cause us to miss out on, what he wants to do miss out on his on his blessing and, and so we want to get rid of some of that stuff Paul's led us in worship so well this morning that song as, as Paul was as he quoted it moved by it equally I was, I could, I could hold on and that's the story of the children of Israel incredibly God had heard their cries and set them free and that's wonderful but he wants more for that than us He wants more for us than that. And and he's calling us higher. He's calling us deeper. And so the story as we get to the end of Joshua is that he's given them all of this land and they still haven't fully taken it. Still haven't fully taken it. And sometimes we think that it's, well, he set us free. He saved us. He's rescued us. Thank you, Jesus. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful testimony. But actually, he's calling you into more. He's calling you into take over land, take over Take on the things that he has promised, and so we uh, we want to we want to see that the Lord constantly. The Lord is one who keeps his promises, but will his people do their part? We're going to ask that every, every every so often throughout this book. The Lord is one that keeps his promises, but will his people do their part, or will they do their own thing? The same is true for us today. The Lord is a, is is a covenant keeping God he's faithful to his promises he'll always keep his promises and the question still for us will his people do their part will his people do their part or will they do their own thing and so by way of introduction this morning uh, I just want to say that there's a few themes there's a few threads that I that even if we don't necessarily always point them out I want you to know at the start of this book that there's that there's a few themes there's a few threads that will run throughout this this book throughout this series the first one I've already mentioned it, that, that there, he is he relentlessly offers grace. He relentlessly offers grace when it's not deserved and actually even when it's not sought for. That's how that's how much he is he is going to keep on pursuing his people. That's how even today he's going to continue to pursue lost sons and daughters. He's relentless. He's relentless in his pursuit of, of, of his people. Relentless in his pursuit of those made in his image. And even when it's not deserved. And even when it's not even sought for. And we'll see it throughout this book. We'll see throughout this book that he wants all of us. Even from the very beginning. Even from these first two chapters. We'll begin to see it unravel. It starts off really well. But even in the first two chapters. We see it unravel a bit. And we recognize right from the beginning. We recognize right from the beginning of the of the Bible, right throughout the whole story, that he wants all of us. He wants all of us, and and yet we have learned. Yet these guys learned to live with idols among them, and that's what we want to challenge over this series. He he wants all of you, and yet we have we have we have learned. We have learned to live with idols. We have chosen to live with idols. We'll see throughout this book. That there is a need, a need for continual spiritual renewal. There is a need for a continual spiritual renewal. And as we go and we are introduced to every one of these judges that, that come and try to try to bring rescue and try to bring hope, try to set the people back on the on the right path, we'll ultimately see where they all feel. And we'll see and recognise that we need a true Saviour. We need a true Saviour. And so so throughout all of this, throughout all of this, I want you to know right from the start that that we're going to draw out over and over again how it's always pointing us to Jesus. We're always being pointed to Jesus. Even in here, even in Judges, thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene, we're being introduced, we're being reminded that we need a true Savior. And over and over again throughout this story, and that's why as disturbing as parts of it get, I'm enthused because over and over again we're going to point, we're going to be pointed to Jesus. We're going to see our need for Him. And uh, and so I don't want to be too long this morning, but I want to make sure that we that we that we read that we delve into this. And so I'm going to read um, I'm going to read Judges chapter one until uh, and finish at Judges chapter two verse five. And would love us that we just would read it together. If you have a Bible, uh, please read it. If you have a Bible, please, over the next number of weeks, bring it with you. And if you're comfortable, write notes underlining, engaging with the word. So uh, so read, let's read this. And if you just prefer to, to listen, do that. So it's a chunky passage, so let's uh, concentrate. God, let us concentrate well in these moments. Um, Judges chapter 1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked the Lord, uh, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and cut him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Just so you know, I have no theological explanation for that. Verse 7, then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it in fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, the Negev in the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Hahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, take note of these verses, Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother took it, So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. And one day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms and with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. Now, if you can just pause there and just say it, it would be great if that, was the, if, that was the, if that was where it ended, if that's where the introduction to this book ended but it doesn't, and I think the next verse we begin to see it unravel slightly. And increasingly, as the rest of this chapter goes on, verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had Aaron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem to this day. The Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent them to spent men to spy out Bethel, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. Show, so he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth-shan or Tannik or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or Halab, or Aksib or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Nephtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Nephtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Harris, Agilon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites were from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called that place Bokem, which means weepers. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. I was going to ask somebody this week, would they read that out for me? But I didn't want you to think that I hated you that much. And I didn't want you to, to, to pull a sickie on a Sunday morning either. So, um, I know some of that is hard to follow along, but I just think it's important that we just read this all all together as I've said, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good start. Yeah, Joshua, the book of Joshua ends with with that acknowledgement that there's still more land to take, and so the people gather together and say, "Right, Lord, who who's who's going first? How are we going to take this? We're ready." And. Uh, and right from the beginning of this first chapter of Judges, we're reminded, as I've already said, the Lord keeps his promises. He'll always keep his promises, but will his people do their part or will they do their own thing? And I want to just, I just want to, there's two or three things, um, I'm just aware of time, but there's two or three things that I'd love to make sure that I say that will help fill out our conversations on, uh, on Wednesday night. And, uh, and I want to just concentrate for a few moments on, on Caleb. 'cause I believe that Caleb gives us an idea of what Israel should have been like. It gives us an idea of what God was longing for for Israel to look like. Um and it's in contrast to what we what we see in the in the chapter in the verses that follow. I'd love to have time to go into more of the story but but just to, rather than assuming everybody knows about about Caleb we uh, are reminded of them in numbers thirteen and fourteen. If you want to, if you want to go there over the next number of days and and read up more on the the faith and the response to opposition, um, the right response to opposition uh, that Caleb um, shows us, and they're sent out. Moses sends out the spies to, to explore the land and. And uh, the 12 of them come back and 10 of them say that it's too big. The enemy's too powerful. The giants are too big. And even though the land's great, even though we loved the land, and it would be incredible if we could take it. We are aware that we can't. Their faith wasn't big enough. Their God wasn't big enough. But for Caleb and Joshua, we're told that in verse 30 of Numbers 13, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it and they were told it it's not that Caleb and Joshua didn't see the giants it's not that they didn't see the difficulties that would be posed with taking on and entering into to, to new land but they knew that the Lord was pleased they knew that the Lord was pleased and that the Lord would be true to his promises and the Lord would give us that land and don't be afraid of the people but because the Lord is with us don't be afraid of the people, because the Lord is with us. And and I just love the story of Caleb. I love the story of Caleb. It's why our firstborn is called Caleb. We're so inspired and attracted to, to this story. And uh, and it is one of it is one of covenant faithfulness. He is he one of he. Caleb's story is one of radical trust. His story is one of courageous obedience. Incredible story, incredible man of faith, and we get to the, the, this little story about Caleb in the book of uh, the f- verse twelve, thirteen, and fourteen of of Judges. And uh, and I think it's he wants the same. He wants the same for the generation that will follow after him. He wants to reward the generation, the fault that will follow after uh, him. Those that will show that same level of covenant faithfulness, those that will show that radical trust, and those that will show courageous obedience. That's why he calls out what I want from a daughter, what I want for what I want from a child, what I want for the next generation, is for a man that will come and not be intimidated by, by, the, by the enemy's territory. Will not be intimidated by, by the giants that invade our land. And 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 that's what Caleb wants. His daughter. That's what Caleb wants for the next generation, and so I would love that as we as we explore more of this 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 thread. I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll pull it over the next number of weeks as well. And I'd love you during the weeks that you would begin to ask questions about what is it that you want for the next generation. What is it that you want for your daughters and sons? What is it that uh, that we want for the next generation? I'm so struck. by by the words of D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson talks really simply about saying that one generation believes, the next generation assumes, and the next generation denies. And there's times whenever I I remind myself of that quote and and it causes me to shudder. Caleb made sure that the next generation was not going to assume. Made sure the next generation was going to believe and the next generation was going to fight and the next generation was going to pay the price. And so I'm so grateful, and, and, and I'm not going to look at it, but if those that are in, in the generation above me, if you want to, you can fit yourself into that category or not. I know Ian probably finds it hard to say because it's the generation above me. But I uh, but I think you are, Ian. But I, but for, but, I was here, but Ian's and Pauline's, Billy's, mum's and oh, grannies and... Robert, all of you guys that are part of the generation above, I want to say thank you. I want to honor you. Because you paid a price that caused me to to get something for free. I walk in in freedom. I can stand and worship together today because there's people, there's a generation ahead of me that's willing to pay the price. And so as I read the story of Caleb, I'm already asking myself, I find myself as my kids are getting older, what what price am I going to pay so that they get for free? Because if I'm not going to pay a price, if I'm not going to pay the price, they're going to to end up assuming. And my grandkids are going to end up denying. And so I'm saying to this generation, I'm saying to our generation, what price price are we going to pay so the generation coming after us get for free? We've walked in inheritance. We've walked in, in, in those that have paid the price for us. And so what do we want for the next generation? How, what, what do our lifestyles, how are we going to shift our lifestyles? How are we going to going to shift our priorities? Because if your lifestyle and your priorities is the same as your neighbors, is the same as those that aren't following Jesus, or aren't part of the family of God, then I, can, I am almost can guarantee that your kids are going to end up assuming they're going to end up not taking a hold of, of, of faith. They're going to end up not taking a hold of the things of God if, if we as parents, as grandparents, aren't going to pay a price, if we're not going to shift our priorities, if we're not going to shift our lifestyles. And so I'd love it that we begin to ask ourselves questions on Wednesday nights about family worship. What could family worship look like? What could devotional time with our kids look like? Devotional time with her with aunts and uncles, with her cousins, with peers? What, what could that look like? times that grandparents spend with their kids, times that aunts and uncles spend with their kids. And so I think there's more to say that. And I don't want to rush, but I want to be really respectful of, of time. And At the end of verse 18, as I've said, this seems like it's an encouraging start. It seems like they've, they've begun to take on the land. They've begun to hear from heaven. They've begun to take on the 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 legacy of of Joshua, but then we get to verse nineteen and and it seems that this story almost is in contrast with the story of Caleb, one of radical trust, one of courageous obedience. But we get to the men of Judah and we're told the Lord was with them, the Lord was with them, but they were unable to to drive the people from the plains and the problem with that the difficulty with that, and I know some of this can be easier said than done, but they look. They measure their own strength against the strength of their enemy. And how often are we guilty of doing that? How often are we guilty with measuring our own strength against the strength of our enemies? David, or Neville took us through the story of David in 1 Samuel 17. See, it's, it, seemed, it, made, it made no common sense. I know Neville says that David wasn't the underdog, and I agree with what he's saying, but, but to look on it visually, here is a, a, a nine-foot nine foot giant ready to ready to take on whoever comes his way it doesn't seem to make any sense that a, that, a, that a short young shepherd boy would come out and be the one that would take him on David didn't operate with common sense David didn't just use common sense Caleb and Joshua didn't just use common sense it was faith it was, they were inspired by faith because we can, we, can, we can think that we're using common sense but it's actually faithless and so the Lord was with these guys. The Lord was with the men of Judah, but they were not able to drive the people out from the land. They had iron chariots. They had no iron chariots. And so as we look on, it seems almost unfair to criticize because it's common sense that you don't go out with any, without any armor or any other chariots or weapons and think that you're going to defeat them. But they're reminded that God was with them and and so, you know, it's not our lack of strength that causes us to miss out on the blessings of God. It's not our lack of strength that prevents us from worshipping him wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength. It's our lack of faith in his strength. And so relying on self, I think we'll see this throughout the story of the book of Judges. We see, we see bits of it at, uh, as we see what, what, uh, what goes on after these few verses with Manasseh, and Zebulun, and Asher, and Naphtali, we see what relying on self leads us to making wrong choices. See, we begin to see in the stories of the tribes of Israel, we see what half-hearted obedience looks like. We we begin to see what halfway discipleship looks like. And we begin to see that that convenience ends up trumping obedience. Rather than drive the people out, they thought, well, let's just use them and, and, and force them to work for us. Rather than drive them out, let's just allow them to live among us. Save ourselves the, bat- save ourselves the fight. Save ourselves the, the battle. Save ourselves the inconvenience. It was half-hearted that God had said, drive them out. Drive them out. And what I want, actually, what I would love to say, I'm not going to address it this morning but I feel like we sh- probably should address it as we get further into the book of Judges. I want us to be able to be really open and honest and ask ourselves questions like, what do we do with the, the Old Testament portraits of, of what looks like a violent God? How do, we, how do we reconcile that when we see one of, we see, we see Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies and some of, the, some of the stories that we read in the Old Testament, some of the stories that we read in the book of Judges? I'd love us that we would be able to, to, to talk through some of that stuff, this isn't—it's not—it's not ethical cleansing. This is this is spiritual. This is spiritual. God's wanting God's wanting these people to take on the land, ultimately, so that they can, so that the rest of the nations can see what it's like to follow God to attract other nations to what it is to be a people sold out, wholehearted obedience, wholehearted discipleship. And in, in these last few moments, I just want to. Again, for the sake of uh, our introduction and for the sake of our conversation on Wednesday, verse chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that, that they were unable to drive the people out because they had iron chariots. But we get to chapter 2, we get to chapter 2 and verse 2, we hear what the angel of the Lord has to say. The angel of the Lord says, you, you didn't obey, you disobeyed. And so you're, it almost is like you're saying that you can't but God is saying that you won't. And I would love, I would love us that we'd be honest enough that, to, to, to poke ourselves with that question. Because there is areas maybe in, even in this room around forgiveness that you say I can't forgive but actually God is saying you won't forgive. There's areas of there's areas of, of, of temptation. that You're saying, you can't help it. I can't stop myself. God's saying, you won't stop. There's areas of, of telling the truth. You're saying, but I can't tell the truth because the consequences, if the truth came out, if I told them the truth, it would just be too difficult. You're saying, you can't say the truth. God is saying, you won't tell the truth. And so I know that can be really difficult, especially if you don 't know people well enough, but even outside of the of our home groups i'd love you to, that, that you had somebody that you trusted well enough that you can have these conversations with because god 's people here were saying we can 't do it, but when we get to when we get to the to the angels the angel of the lord's summary of things he 's saying you wouldn 't do it, and I just think there's areas of our lives and I, and, I, and trust me i 'm I'm, this is some of this stuff is really challenging trust me it is I don't want to take it lightly and assume that it's not challenging but I try to be as real and as authentic with myself as possible Go, where are the areas that I'm saying that I can't and actually when I find myself in a place of worship when I find myself in a place of, of being with you you're almost gent- gently telling me, reminding me that it's, it's not that I can't it's that I won't And so I'd love us that we think through that. And then finally, verse one and, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 3, Michael Wilcox says that it, that it should be read like this. Our English translation misses what's being said. He says that it should read like, I, I said I will never break my covenant, and I also said if you compromise with these nations, I will not drive them out. He goes on to say, It is though the Lord is saying, I have sworn to give you the whole of this land, yet I have also sworn not to give it to disobedient people. And this is a tension that we see throughout the book of Judges. In fact, I I think it's a tension that we see throughout the whole Bible. The tension of, God, you have sworn to give us the whole of the land. But he's also said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it to disobedient people. He cannot cannot tolerate or live with evil. But he also cannot tolerate the loss of people that he has committed himself to. It's this tension that runs right throughout the Bible. He cannot tolerate evil. He cannot tolerate living amongst evil. But he cannot tolerate the loss of a people that he has committed himself to. And this is why I'm saying we're going, to, we're going to keep on being directed to Jesus. We're going to keep on having ourselves pointed to Jesus and him crucified. Because it's at the cross of Jesus where this tension is resolved. It's at the cross where the, the, this tension is, is resolved. It's only in the cross. Without Jesus crucified, we'll always either be complacent, tolerate evil, or will be, or will be burdened, consumed with the guilt and shame. And so I'm done, and we're gonna, we're gonna have some, we're gonna have some things for Wednesday night that will just help lead, a, lead a conversation to lead, have some questions that will lead us to, to try and unpacking this a wee bit more. And um and so we'll get stuck back into the end of Chapter Two. Uh, end of chapter 2 the beginning of chapter 3 next week um but god i just thank you for your word and we just pray that you allow us to allow it to just um, resonate within us god allow it to, to, to challenge us and to, to provoke us to motivate us god we just pray that we would jesus that we would see you throughout throughout this whole book we would see you and we would lift you high you'd be exalted king jesus